Hello and welcome to the Europeans. I am Dominic and... Oh, sorry, I'm Katie. Is that what I'm supposed to say? I'm never going to learn how to do this. I was listening to loads of podcasts this week and realised that that's how everyone starts their podcast. And we never do that. We dare to be different. I think that's a nice thing. I guess so. But I am in London this week and so are you, but we're not in the same room. Why are we not in the same room? Because London is so huge. Oh God, I went out last night and I wanted to leave at 12.30 and I didn't get back until nearly two. Oh, Dominic, you've got to stop with this whole clubbing malarkey. We're too old for it now oh, it wasn't a club it was an old people's party oh <laughs> wow these are quite wild old people really wild we are seeing each other tomorrow which is exciting that is very exciting same place same time um but how are you uh yes i'm well thank you i went to the london podcast festival this weekend oh did you who did you see um i won't tell you because what i wanted to say was that i saw a live version of a podcast that i really like going to sleep to so I was a bit worried that I was just going to kind of... they just play the intro music and I would just automatically drop off to sleep, like one of Pavlov's dogs or something. But um, yeah, the podcast that will not be named was really excellent live. It did make me more resolved than ever that we will never, ever do a live show because it looked frankly terrifying. I agree. Let's never, ever do a live version of this podcast. I don't know how to talk. I can only talk when Katie edits me. Not even then, frankly. Um, by the way, mm. talking of London, I saw this week that apparently EasyJet are planning on having electric planes fly between Amsterdam and London from 2030. Wow. Did you know that? Oh, so they've already got them designed and stuff. No. There's a company that recently started doing some little tester flights with tiny eight-seater airplanes, but they can only go a few hundred miles. But I didn't even realise that that was a feasible possibility. I mean, why not? If we can do it on the roads, (laughs) she said scientifically, why not the sky? Um, You should volunteer for the test flights. No, thank you. Are you trying to kill me off? (laughs) Maybe a little bit. I told you I'd be mean to you this week. Um, Anyway... We should get on with this. What's going on this week? This week, we're heading into the Brussels bubble um, because the incoming EU Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, announced her commissioner nominees for the next term. That sounds really exciting. (laughs) It does sound really exciting. (laughs) It's actually quite an interesting interview because the person we're interviewing, Alberto Alemano, is really charismatic and speaks about it in a really interesting way. He's quite an expert when it comes to European institutions. And he seems to be one of those people that just does a ridiculous number of things too many things for me to list here but they range from him being a professor of EU law in Paris to running a non-profit in Brussels called the Good Lobby we'll get to that later but I've got a commemoration corner to start with oh it's been a while This week would have been the 200th birthday of Clara Schumann, a superstar pianist and composer of her day. These days, most people know more about the career of her husband, the composer Robert Schumann. But in their day, she was thought of as the most distinguished pianist of her generation. She's got a really fascinating life story. And if you'd like to hear more about her, then I recommend you listen to the first episode of a podcast called Decomposed. It's presented by the American pianist Jade Simmons. And the episode is called A Fallen Abominable Wicked Girl. I really don't think this one is only interesting to me because I'm a classical musician. I think it will appeal to a wide audience. So go and check it out in celebration of her 200th birthday. Who's had a good week, Katie? Uh, I would argue that it's been a good week for eye-catching activism. 
most people living on this continent will have noticed an uptick in climate activism of various shades over the last few months. There have been all these kids going on strike from school in loads of different countries. There's been the Extinction Rebellion people blocking the roads. And in France, we have developed a quite specifically French form of climate activism in the form of people nicking portraits of Emmanuel Macron from public buildings. Just to explain a bit, if you go into any school in France or any public building, you will see a big portrait of our dear president, hanging on the wall, watching over the scene with a, a look of kind of fatherly authority. Uh, Macron's one actually caused a bit of a stir when he became president because you can see not one, but two smartphones on the desk behind him. Whoa. Which is considered very modern. Is it a photo? Uh, yeah, it's a photo. Not a photorealistic oil painting. <laughs> it's an individual oil painting for every single public building in France. No, they're photos. Um, but the reason we're talking about this is because there's been a string of court cases recently over climate activists pinching these portraits from public buildings and being charged with theft. The movement is known as Décroche en Macron, uh, which I guess you could translate as let's take Macron down, something like that. And it's been spearheaded by an activist group called Action Non-Violente COP21, which is very catchy. Mm. Uh, and they've stolen about 130 of these portraits all around the country. The group are basically arguing that what they're doing is non-violent civil disobedience to draw attention to the climate emergency. One of them said that they were leaving the walls of government buildings as empty as the government's climate policies, which I thought was quite a good zinger. Ooh, yeah. And um, I would argue that what they've been doing is pretty effective. There have been a few court cases over these thefts recently, and mostly the climate activists have been getting away with just fines of a couple of hundred euros. Uh, but it's really been in the headlines this week because the biggest trial of its kind is now underway. Eight activists on trial in Paris for portrait stealing, all of them young people in their 20s and 30s. And in theory, they could face up to five years in jail because, well, technically it's theft. The prosecutors only asked for 1,000 euro fines, half of it suspended. But at the time of recording, they haven't been sentenced yet. So we're going to have to cross our fingers for these thieves which is something I didn't think I'd be saying this week. <laughs> but hey, you're giving them good week anyway, so they should be thrilled. I think they should be thrilled. Well done, thieves. <laughs> I'm not sure you can say that. Well done, thieves. Are you going to be prosecuted for like encouraging thievery? Absolutely not condoning theft in any way. But I will say... Theft, that's it, not thievery. <laughs> thievery. <laughs> this is why I can't do a live podcast. I do think we need kind of more disruptive activism like Extinction Rebellion. But I think people do also get sick of things quite quickly. So it's quite good to have like lots of different types of climate activism. I can't imagine this happening anywhere else, really. Although it would be quite fun if it started happening in America. And fun things could be done with uh, Trump portraits. What are you suggesting? Again, not condoning theft or thievery in any shape or form. Good. Okay. Who has had a bad week, Dominic? I'm giving bad week to a 29-year-old Swede, a guy called Felix Kjellberg, also known as PewDiePie, one of the most successful YouTubers out there. And I find the name PewDiePie really annoying, but that's irrelevant. That's not why he's getting bad week. Kjellberg announced a few weeks ago in celebration of his YouTube channel surpassing 100 million subscribers and a new sponsorship deal that he would be donating $50,000 to the Anti-Defamation League, a group that fights anti-Semitic hate. 
This was quite a turnaround for the YouTuber. You may remember that he was dropped by Disney in 2017 following a report in the Wall Street Journal that found anti-Semitic references in at least nine of his videos, including one where he shows a clip of two guys unveiling a sign that says death to Jews whilst he's like giggling behind his hand. Mm. PewDiePie was very defensive at the time and claimed they were jokes, denying any accusations of anti-Semitism, saying that he thought it was laughable that people thought he was endorsing anti-Semitic views. But he did understand that the posts could be offensive to some people and his proposed donation to the Anti-Defamation League was a sign that maybe he had learnt the errors of his ways. He had framed his donation as a way to try and move on, as he said, after the shooter in Christchurch, New Zealand, who killed 51 people at a mosque, had shouted, subscribe to PewDiePie, whilst live-streaming his massacre. That's the background. Why has he had a bad week? Well, PewDiePie has a lot of fans on the far right. And following his announcement about the donation a few weeks back, there was a stream of rather bizarre conspiracy theories flooding the internet with ideas that he was being blackmailed somehow by the ADL or that he was being forced by YouTube to do this. And to be fair to the conspiracy theorists, he does have a somewhat touchy relationship with YouTube who are trying to work out how best to deal with this guy who is on their platform and apparently inspiring people on the far right. But also bringing in loads and loads of advertising revenues. Absolutely, yeah. That's their conflict. Tough one. And the ADL have in the past been very critical of PewDiePie. So it seemed perhaps strange to some of his fans that he would then go on to give money to a charity that has been critical of him. So he made a video this week in which he tries pretty unsuccessfully, in my opinion, to explain why he's changing course and also why he had initially chosen the ADF. I made the mistake of picking a charity that I was advised instead of picking a charity that I'm personally passionate about, which is 100% my fault. Yeah, are we meant to take from this that he is not passionate about curbing anti-Semitism? Many people will come to that conclusion and it once again creates a pretty nasty taste around the channel of Felix Kjellberg. Watching this video in which he tries to explain why he's now realised it was wrong to support them, you can see that he's grappling with some sense of responsibility. He's clearly being pulled in different directions and he's clearly not got very good judgment. By making this decision, he just goes to confirm the suspicions of the anti-Semitic people amongst his fans. He is allowing the far-right elements online to guide him and if he really wants to improve his public image, this is certainly not the way to do it. That said, he doesn't seem to have lost many of his 100 million subscribers, so ah, bad week for all of us. That's grim. Um, maybe he could improve his image by coming on a nice, friendly, liberal podcast like this one. He could. Send him an email, see what he says. I will. From our new email address, by the way, hello at europeanspodcast.com. We're no longer like lame Gmail people. I mean, we're still using Gmail secretly. It's just forwarding to that one. Just makes it look smarter. Is it time to head into the Brussels bubble, Katie? It's time. We don't go there very often. Um, as you might have noticed, this is a podcast, well, hosted from London this week, but usually from Amsterdam and Paris. So we live in Europe and we are interested in what happens here, but kind of on the continent as a whole, I think it's fair to say, not necessarily obsessing with sort of Brussels politics all the time because 
we don't really know what's going on. Although we would like to. We're trying to get better at that. But yeah, every now and then, we like to venture into the bubble and figure out what's going on. Because what happens there actually does affect our lives in quite profound ways. And uh, this is one of those weeks. We're going to talk about Ursula von der Leyen, or VDL, as some people are calling her. I think it's just people who are lazy and don't want to pronounce her name. VDL quite like it although it does sound a bit like a disease um can we do a bit of a recap because i'm not convinced that everyone has been following the saga of who is in charge in the eu yeah go on <laughs> all right i'll do my best so rewind back to ooh, when was it july there is zero agreement among eu countries over who should be in charge over the next five years in theory it was supposed to be one of the candidates put up by the party groupings within the european parliament but none of them could muster enough enthusiasm Nobody could get excited about any of those, which is how we ended up with Ursula von der Leyen being suggested as the woman who should become the next EU Commission president. Hugely powerful job, probably the most powerful job in Europe. But she kind of comes from nowhere. So she was Germany's defence minister and has now suddenly been catapulted to potentially being in charge of Europe, essentially. She was pretty unpopular in Germany as well, wasn't she? Well, to be fair, like German defence ministers have a quite tough job and it's like a horrible ministry to run. But yeah, not super popular at home. But on an EU level she was kind of someone that people could compromise on everyone was kind of lukewarm and okay about her which is great our guest actually Alberto is one of the people who is not happy with how she came into office but we'll get to that in a little bit Uh, so Ursula gets picked and she has to set about putting a team in place one commissioner for every country it's basically like appointing a government cabinet but on like a massive EU scale Uh, And that's what happened this week. She named the people that she wants to be in charge and and what their job titles should be. Each of them has to be nominated individually by the European Parliament and go through sometimes quite tough interviews. And then at the end of that, if they've all gone through, the Parliament gets to vote on the Commission as a whole. So, yeah, there's a bit of a tough job ahead of her. And she's not started on the best footing. Ursula got a bit creative with some of her brief titles. Uh, with one particularly tasteless title, which was for the Greek nominee, who was charged with protecting the European way of life. A brief which included responsibility for migration policy in the EU. That, as you can understand, didn't go down very well. People thought it was kind of dog whistle politics. And apparently it's been dropped already. But it does suggest that perhaps she's missing a bit of strategic nous. Yeah, this whole row was quite interesting because she seemed quite surprised that everyone got very upset about this far-right sounding job title. I mean, protecting the European way of life and linking that to migration. It's the kind of language you hear from people like Viktor Orban in Hungary and people that complain that basically European culture is being diluted by the arrival of, well, brown people essentially. But she didn't really seem to get it. She was like, why should the far-right have a monopoly on this kind of language? And sometimes it's like well maybe the far right should have a monopoly on that kind of horrible language we don't really need to all share in it anyway so that was very controversial there are a couple of other controversial things about the team she's named so i think it'd be good for us to unpick some of those with the help of alberto alberto alamano he is i don't think he sleeps actually because as dominic said earlier he is simultaneously a professor of european law at the very prestigious hec in paris he is the founder of a very cool activist group called the good lobby and he's like a really prolific tweeter about europe as well i think he must just have more hours in the day than we do maybe he's got like a pause button that'd be so helpful
I have a sneaking suspicion that there are some things you're probably not too pleased with about in the new commission. So I was wondering whether we could start by talking about the things that you were pleased to discover when it was unveiled earlier in the week. That's a very difficult question because <laughs> I've been quite unhappy with uh, Ursula. And the reason for that is that Ursula von der Leyen didn't run for the European Parliament election. And she's totally unknown to most European citizens. I'm among those who are a bit unhappy about the fact that she got a job without having a clear political mandate. Even when she got the majority of the European Parliament, only eight votes made a difference. We still 300 members of Parliament, basically half of it voting against her. Uh, she didn't have a political agenda and she continues not to have a clear cut political agenda. So. To reply to your question, I think what I'm happy about uh, of Ursula von der Leyen team, which has been unveiled on Tuesday, is that there are some committed individuals who have a lot of political experience who will try to get the most out of these experience in the Commission and trying to steer Europe towards the right direction. Unfortunately, those individuals are not the majority, and matters have been made even worse by the very unfelicitous a uh, choice of semantics that Ursula von der Leyen made uh, when presenting and unveiling her team, uh, coming up with these very weird formulas, which sound very odd, a bit Orwellian and slightly out of touch with European society and European needs. I think you're talking about one job title in particular, which we're going to get onto in a minute. But in terms of the positive things, OK, it's clear that you don't think there are many things to cheer about in these nominations. But this is the first commission chief to announce a gender balanced teams, like roughly equal numbers of men and women on the team. That's something to celebrate, isn't it? No doubt. It was, it was long due. Another good uh, announcement, perhaps, was Franz Timmermans' new brief in charge of the European Green Deal. Do you think this is something to be excited about or do you think it's just kind of a bit of greenwashing, something to just make it look good and environmentally friendly. As we all know, that expression, a Green New Deal, really comes from a very specific progressive area of thinking and action on both sides of the Atlantic. In seeing a, a European Commission whose, uh, let's say, center of gravity seems to stay more on the right, center right, sounds a bit suspicious and it sounds a bit difficult also to present to the public in a convincing way. There's obviously an inner tension between the liberal progressive stance of this commission and the more European Popular Party one, which seems to be, even during the electoral campaign, using the green argument as, as greenwashing, as something that she had to be mentioned like a buzzword to tick that box and to move on. So it is very difficult to understand what does it mean for the European Union to develop a Green New Deal. There are some legitimate reasons why to be slightly concerned and perhaps also to be slightly puzzled by this very courageous choice of semantics when it comes to define Franz Timmermans big goal, the man who is going to be able to make happy every single political parties. And as we know, their commitment varies quite significantly. So this will be a very uh, bumpy ride for Mr. Timmermans. Let's talk a little bit more about semantics, because there was one particular job title that has caused a lot of kerfuffle, I think we can say, in the last week, and has now been abandoned, apparently. Um, but yeah, Ursula wanted to name one of her new team Commissioner for Protecting the European Way of Life. I think you were quite upset when you saw that job title, weren't you? Uh, I was upset for a variety of reasons, uh, certainly not only because it sounds very weird and odd, 
but also because uh, the choice of those words in association with our portfolio uh, that has to do with migration and security clearly convey an idea that belongs only to far-right party at the moment in Europe. And the idea is the following. We need to protect our way of life against somebody. But obviously, I belong to those people who luckily are still the majority in Europe who think that our way of life is about opening up our borders and welcoming people in needs. They basically believe that the only way to conquer the electorate supporting the far right is to embrace and share the very same language than the far right is using. This is a form of populism, a populism that is pursuing a different objective, which is to protect the status quo, not to disrupt it as the far right want to do, but by using exactly the same language. And it seems like she made a bit of a strategic error in this case, because as Katie mentioned, she's it looks like she's rowing back from this controversial title. Shouldn't she have been a bit more careful considering she's got such a tiny majority in the parliament? It's now up to MEPs to individually accept or reject each of the commissioners. And I think it's quite unusual for MEPs to reject commissioners, but presumably it's quite possible and perhaps even likely that they could in this case? It is very likely that the European Parliament will be quite picky in the way in which you will be examining uh, those candidates. They will be grilled like in the past. But I think this time, due to the original scene of Miss uh, von der Leyen, the fact that she has been uh, chosen by the head of state and government and imposed on the European Parliament, the Parliament will be particularly difficult in accepting uh, the choice and the allocation of portfolios proposed by von der Leyen. I expect at least three uh, members of the new uh, College of Commissioners to be blocked, and therefore those member states will have to come up with different names. We might not rule out that there might even be a negative vote over the whole College of Commissioners. The other thing, the other problem that seems to be on the horizon is that a few of the people she's picked are kind of problematic. Um, I'm thinking about the French commissioner-elect, Sylvie Goulard. Um, she got taken to a French police station the other day over accusations that she misused her expenses while she was an MEP, which is not really a great look. The Polish guy has also faced questions over his expenses and the Romanian candidate has been caught up in a corruption case. So along with having to get all of these people confirmed they could also face separate investigations. It doesn't look like that easy a road ahead for her, does it? All those candidates are career uh, politicians. Uh, they all had a very long and considerable political career. So inevitably, they've been exposed to investigations. They are currently uh, four members. You have forgot one, the most important one, with Ursula von der Leyen, who is also under investigation in Germany, mm. because when she was a minister of defense, she might have... Uh, favored uh, some particular companies uh, that have uh, obtained public procurement contracts from her ministries, in particular one company, which is called McKinsey, which is a company in which uh, one of the sons of uh, Ms. von der Leyen actually works today. So many candidates, commissioner today, are under investigation for very different reasons that very often convey an idea, an idea that uh, these people are slightly out of touch. Politicians today can no longer afford to be perceived as unbalanced, as cutting the corners and be ethically not perfect. What would happen if they voted, the parliamentarians voted down her entire uh commission? What would be the next step? That's unprecedented, isn't it? It would be unprecedented. At the same time, it would be very healthy 
it would be a very healthy signal that uh, there is a mismatch between uh, the outcome of the European elections that has produced a European parliament whose center of political gravity is pretty much center left with a lot of green component and a team that has been imposed and shaped by the member states and government whose center of gravity is pretty much on the center right. And this mismatch is obviously not easy to go through the parliament. And it's important that we have this kind of public debate. Even the conversation we're having about uh, the bad choice of words in relation to the our way of life and the need to protect it is having uh, the effect of triggering a, a healthy debate on whether Europeans should actually consider the way of life different than other people. What is the European uh, way of life? These are legitimate questions that should have been discussed during the electoral campaign. But we're doing it in a reactive way as opposed to a proactive way. And that's the usual original scene of European politics. They are still too much driven by member states and not by the European Union itself and by its citizens. It's really interesting what you say about uh, the reactive way we're looking at this European way of life statement, because I think it's dog whistle politics and I despise it. Another side of me thinks, yeah, this is exactly why we set up this podcast, because we wanted to find out why it was that people didn't feel like they had a European identity. And we shouldn't allow the far right to take hold of this idea of European identity, because it is something that's worth discussing, but just not in that way. If you have a look at the letter of mandate that uh, Ursula von der Leyen sent to Mr. Skinas, who is the older of this uh, commissioner portfolio, you will see in it the issue of public health, would be responsible for agriculture, so the way in which food is produced in Europe, transport, the way in which we move around, energy, the way in which we, we keep our economy and our lifestyle habits uh, alive, and also the environment and the oceans. So the problem is really migration. Why to associate migration with this legitimate policy field that really characterize and make our way of living different than anybody else in the world? I'm also confused about like, how is one job supposed to cover all of that stuff? That sounds mad to me. <laughs> you know, every single president of the European Commission over the last uh, 20 years had fun in restructuring the way in which the commission is organized. In the old days, when I started studying and writing my PhD, it was pretty simple. We had every single country having a commissioner. Each commissioner was responsible like a minister of one policy. But it's no longer the case. Now, uh, there has been an uh, attempt at creating a sort of hierarchy in order to centralize and steer the way in which the College of Commissioners, which is made of 28, they used to be 15 uh, back in the, 19, the 90s when I started working in, in European law and European affairs, but now there are 28. So inevitably, presidents, they try to create these kind of structures, which make things very complicated. While we've got you here, um, I'm sure we could carry on talking about these nominations forever, but um, I would also like to quickly discuss with you this uh, campaign you have started about lobbying, creating a good lobby in the EU. I was wondering if you could briefly introduce our listeners to what it is you're doing, what you think is wrong and how you'd like to change it. The genesis of the idea goes back to a preconceived idea we all have, every single uh, citizen, and I don't blame them because I've been one of them since uh, only a few years ago, believes and perceives that the European Union is the most untransparent, unaccountable organization in the world because it's basically the object of lobbies. To tell you the truth, as a researcher who has been devoting the last 20 years writing books 
about the European Union. I can tell you that the EU as an organization and also as a government is the most transparent and accountable and also responsive organization on her. Meaning that if you write an email to a commissioner as a citizen, you're going to get that answer within 15 days. If it's not going to happen, that person, that official is going to get in trouble. Wow, that's incredible. But it's not only about this. It's about the possibilities that any citizen has to engage with the European Union. You can file a petition to the European Parliament. You can file a complaint to the European Ombudsman. You can take part to a public consultation for every single initiative the European Union is about to start. You can also ask the European Union to start a new policy, a European citizen initiative. Seven citizens coming from seven European countries can actually ask the European Union to act and to start regulating to protect animals or to improve LGBT rights in Europe or to stop the use of pesticides like glyphosate. So when you look at the realities of Europe, it's very different than what many people perceive. But obviously, the problem we have in Europe is that only the lobbies are actually using those tools. So there is a problem of literacy, how much people know about these opportunities, and there's a problem of access to power. So the objective of my organization, which is a nonprofit civic startup called The Good Lobby in a very oxymoronic fashion and also provocative fashion, is to say, why don't we demystify and democratize lobbying as a form of participation, as a form of democratic participation, which is constructive and which is complementary to representative democracy? In 2012, we start experimenting the first European citizen initiative. We start collecting one million signature. We never managed to collect more than a few thousand, but it was enough to put the issue on the agenda. And the issue was to stop international roaming, to make sure that citizens could travel around Europe, make calls, receiving calls, without actually having to pay extra fees. Wait, wait, wait a second. So was it you guys that did the roaming, that got the roaming law passed then? Well, we're not going to take credit for this because several actors at the political level, in civil society, took the initiative. In the early 2010, very few telecom operators were willing to give up on the extra profits they were making by charging roaming charges. So we decided to use such a new instrument of the European Citizen Initiative to convey to the European political leadership and to the telecom industry the expectation that citizens have not to be charged when they're traveling around Europe. And I think we played a pivotal role in accelerating a process that probably would have occurred anyway, but you know we were part of it and we were much more bottom up than what was happening in the Brussels corridor. We spent quite a lot of this podcast trying to work out what it means to be European. And I guess in a way what the European way of life is completely detached from this whole horrible semantic argument that we've been having over the last few days. What do you think the European way of life is? The European way of life is about being treated for who you are, wherever you are. That means that you shouldn't be treated differently in Germany because you are Italian or to be treated differently in France if you're German. So our way of life is about freedom. Freedom of deciding to stay and pass all your life in the village in which you were born, or the freedom to move around every single week of your life and to feel comfortable, to feel not discriminated. Think about a Canadian being treated as an American citizen. Think about the Mexicans being treated as an American citizen in the US. This is something unconceivable. Well, in Europe, we have been doing it. Already 70 years ago, 
we accepted, then an Italian could be treated like a German in Germany, that a German could be treated as a French in France. This is absolutely outstanding. We take it for granted, but it's an incredible construct, a legal, a political agreement we reach at the time that nobody else ever managed to ever envisage. Katie, maybe we should make a podcast about creating a European law with a European Citizens Initiative sourced from our listeners across the continent, following it go through the parliament and change. I mean, I don't know what it would be. We'd have to just take suggestions from people. We should do that. I would be really interested to see what kind of things people think we need extra laws on. Ideas on the postcard, please. Or to our new email address, hello at europeanspodcast.com. Basically, we just want to test if the email address works. So yeah, feel free. Send us things. I've got a nice happy ending for you. Back in 2009, some skeletons were discovered in Modena, Italy, from sometime around the 4th to the 6th century, so quite old. And there was something rather special or cute, you could say, about them. They were holding each other's little skeleton hands. adorable. And they were thus dubbed the lovers of Modena, having held hands for 1,500 years. Wow. Only now, 10 years after their initial discovery, have the researchers worked out the sex of the skeletons. And it turns out they were both men. I know, outrageous, two men holding hands, but also really nice. I myself was touched to discover that they were not the standard heteronormative skeleton pair that many had assumed them to be. Not that I have any problem with heteros. Um, What's wrong with heterosexual skeletons? There's nothing wrong with them. They're perfectly fine, but it was quite fun to find out that they weren't heterosexual skeletons. That said, they probably were, and historians are speculating that they weren't lovers at all. They may have just been soldiers who died in a war together. Or siblings, or cousins so maybe it's not a happy ending story at all sorry but at least they're holding hands it's very nice but yeah these things like cultural norms about hand holding probably vary over time and over places like when my dad first arrived in france in the 70s from vietnam he like tried to hold hands with all his friends in the street they were like what are you doing and he was like oh i just thought that's what we did as mates oh it was sad i think more men should hold hands hi dad mr lee i approve That is all we've got time for this week. Next week, please tune in if, like Dominic, you hate tourists because we're going to be talking about the scourge of over-tourism in Europe that is driving up rents and generally ruining like some of the nicest places on the continent. But it's more fun than it sounds. We've got some really nice interviews lined up. We do, yeah. We've got two interviews lined up for next week and, yeah, I think it's going to be a nice episode. In the meantime, you can find us with all our new logo and graphics and font on our website, europeanspodcast.com or you can find us on Twitter at europeanspod, Instagram, europeanspodcast and on Facebook, you just type in the Europeans Podcast. Also, we are still really grateful to all our Patreon supporters and we'd love it if you decided to join the ranks. You'll get access to our top secret Patreon Facebook group where you can contribute towards the week's episode with ideas, give us feedback. If you donate more than $20 a month, then you'll immediately get sent one of our amazing Angry Macron tote bags. They're a collector's item now that we've lost the logo. They are a collector's item. You can also donate from as little as $2 a month, which we 
are also incredibly grateful for. Just whatever you can afford. Thank you. We would like to thank our newest Patreon donor, Ashley Climo. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you very much, Ashley. See you tomorrow, Katie. Oh, yeah, see you tomorrow. And see the rest of you next week. Bye. Bye.